The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, if you have your Bible, turn to the book of, uh, actually, we're going to be in two places today. So first, I want you to turn to Psalm 78. Everyone turn to Psalm 78. If you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high. We got some uh, gentlemen will come up and down the aisles and make sure that you get one. If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift to you. We pray that the Lord will use that to speak into your life and teach you more and more about how amazing and gracious our God is. So Psalm 78, everybody there? It's kind of in the middle, somewhere right in there. Psalm 78, and then put something there and then go to Ephesians, which is oh, about three quarters of an inch to the right. Inch and a half if you have a large print Bible. And we're gonna do something a little bit different today. Um, today's Father's Day, as I mentioned before, and I happened to run across an article this week um, from a website that I love. It's called The Art of Manliness, and it's just a great, great website. Um, They've asked me to be a contributor, but I don't want to put on airs. You know what I mean? So I haven't done that. But um, they, they had this great article this week um, about the top 10 best dads on television and the worst 10 dads on television. I thought it'd be fun for us to kind of visit that for just a minute. So I have some images for you. If you know the show that this dad is on, shout it out. And don't worry, we're not a fundamentalist church. We're not going to then beat you once we realize you know what you're watching on television, right? So top, top, we're, we're doing the top dads. Good dads first, all right? Dad number one. Let's put up the picture, if we can see it on these slides here. Mayberry, North Carolina. Just saying, just saying. North Carolina, best dad ever, right here, right? Right? You, everybody remembers the line, don't you? Pa, the cage sure looks empty. Yes, yeah, son, but don't the trees look full? If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, you need to fix that. That's one of the greatest lines in television history. Anyway, great dad, Andy Taylor from Mayberry. Dad number two? Now, <laughs> I didn't write this. <laughs> this was not my story. But somehow, Homer Simpson makes best dad list. I I'm just reporting the facts. Number three, go to number three. We're just getting worse, aren't we? Hank Hill from King of the Hill is here. I don't know why. Number four, maybe we'll get a little better response. Who's this? My Three Sons. That's Steve Douglas from My Three Sons. Number five, everybody knows this one. Leave it to Beaver, Ward Cleaver, that's right. Number six. <laughs> um, let's just go on to number seven. <laughs> Who's this? Father Knows Best, that's right, Jim Anderson. Number eight, Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch. I can't stand that show. Wife loves it, but I'm sorry. Um, number nine, this is a little tougher one. Who knows this one? Mike Camden from Seventh Heaven, that's right. And then number 10, one of my favorites growing up. Oh, Happy Days. Come on, Netflix, give us Happy Days, would you please? Happy days. Those are the top 10 dads, according to this article. Obviously, there's some debate amongst some of the candidates there, but that's where they are. Now, let's take a look at the worst 10 dads on television. Number one, <laughs> nobody wants to name that show, but all of you know it. This is Tony Soprano from The Sopranos. Number two, 
Al Bundy, Married with Children. Remember when that show came out on Fox and you thought the world was ending? Man, we've gone a long ways, unfortunately. Uh, Number three. Archie Bunker. Number four. Frank Costanza from Seinfeld, one of the greatest TV characters ever. Number five, ugh, Peter Griffin from The Family Guy. If you don't know what it is, you're better off for it. Number six, anybody know this one? Arthur Spooner from King of Queens. This is the only actor to make the list twice, both on the bad dad categories, unfortunately, for him. But yep, there he is. Uh, number, number seven, Jack Bauer. But listen, you got to admit, his family's always getting kidnapped or getting like on the verge of death. You can't be a great dad when your family's in that level of danger all the time. I mean, let's just, yes, he saves them over and over and the rest of the world always in a 24-hour period. So we'll give him credit for that. But one of the best binge-watching television shows in history. Um, Number eight. The show? Everybody loves Raymond. From the same show, number nine, (laughs) Raymond's dad. And then finally, the only person to make both lists, this will make you happier, number 10, Homer Simpson. Now, did you notice something about those two lists? Did you notice how current the bad dads are? And how far back we had to reach for some of the good dads? In fact, I'll tell you something. (laughs) Other than Homer Simpson, no one on the good dads list is on an active, currently running television show. None of them. That's amazing, isn't it? Why is that? Is it because that's where culture's going? Or maybe is the culture right now reflecting just who we are and what we've learned? Because unfortunately, the role of the father has suffered a lot. Many of us, like myself, put up the next picture if you guys would have had some really difficult father experiences. This is my father, Mike Kinsley. I haven't spoken to him in about 15 years now, not for lack of trying, but uh, my father led us in kind of that classic religious go to church all the time thing, and then once we got older, after 26 years of marriage, bailed and ran off with the secretary, and uh, I haven't heard from him really since. And I got to tell you guys something. There there was something my father said to me when I confronted him when all this was blowing up. My dad started telling me that he'd been unhappy in the marriage forever and making all kinds of, you know, justification for what he had done and all this stuff. And he said something to me. He said, at least be thankful that I waited until you were grown up. I was in college at the time. At least be thankful that I waited until that point to leave. And at, at that point, I made some sarcastic joke about, oh, I'll give you a medal or something ridiculous at that point. You can take the picture down now, guys. But, but here's the reality of it. There's not a day, week, or month that goes by that that experience and the things that went on regarding me and my father and even things relating to my upbringing when my father was in the home doesn't affect me to this day. I talk to people who are adults all the time who are still carrying baggage because of their relationship with their father, like bad relationships, bad experiences, abuses or neglects, all of those sorts of things. There are people that are carrying these things out all the time. The role of the mother is important, right? But by comparison speaking, how many times do you hear someone 
be described as they have daddy issues versus they have mommy issues. Now, now I'm not trying to downplay mothers at all, but there is a major effect and responsibility that rests upon the shoulders of us as men and fathers. Do we understand this, men? Amen? There is. And so today it's Father's Day. We're in the book of Ephesians. Um, and and I, was, I was actually moving on to the very next part. We're in Ephesians 1. That's what we were going to do. And then yesterday morning, dumped the whole thing. We just started over, decided to do something on Father's Day. Um, there's no rule that says you can't move around, right? And Ephesians 6 is a really interesting and important passage with regard to fathers. So this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians 6. And then later on, when we get to Ephesians 6, we'll still look at that passage as we're working our way through. But we'll look at it through the lens of just sort of parenting in general. But today, we're going to look at the responsibility of fathers in Ephesians 6. As we move in Ephesians, remember our whole series on Ephesians is about becoming who you are. And we're going to start out about our identity in Christ and then about how those things live out practically in the church, in the home, in our relationship with others. And one of the things that we're going to see as we move forward and we'll spend time on, um, and I'll teach from the drum cage probably when we get there, but we'll be talking about differences between men and women. And what we're going to find is that the differences between men and women and the roles that men and women are designed to carry are very different and very complex. I mean, you you can see it from children growing up. Boys stack things up to knock them down. Girls take two things and those two things become friends. You know what I mean? That's just kind of how they are. Boys take a chess set and play war with it. Girls, it's a marriage. There's a wedding and a husband and wife, you know, that kind of a thing. There there are just innate differences in there. And so we're going to talk about some of those differences, some of the roles, some of the misunderstandings, some of the abuses, and there's going to be some complex issues that we're going to deal with. But regarding fatherhood for men, it is not a complex subject according to Scripture at all. It's laid out pretty simple. Now, it's not easy, but it's simple. There's not a lot of information given. There's just some pretty straightforward responsibilities that are given to men. And one thing that you will have to learn right away is the importance of men and the responsibility, actually, that God has given us as men. So we're going to start in Ephesians 6, and we're going to look at this. And let me encourage you. If you're a father, listen up. If you're a young woman, you're like, I couldn't be further from this thing. I'm, I'm a young woman, I'm single, I don't have kids, I'm not married, I'm not a man, and I'm not a father, so I'll just check out today. Listen carefully. This is what you're looking for, okay? Pay attention to the shopping list, amen, girls? If you're a young man that's not a father, this is what those girls are looking for. So pay attention, amen, ladies? It's amazing, in this valley in particular, how many times I've talked to young women who say, where are the godly men? Amen again, girls? So boys, listen up that the Lord might grow us into men. If you're already past that, you've already raised kids, you're an empty nester now, or or you're a senior saint, or whatever the case may be, listen up. Because if you take serious the Bible's call to discipleship, then there's going to be and there should be opportunities for you to disciple other people in these things. So this applies to all of us. Amen? So Ephesians 6, let's look what the scriptures say beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So when Paul in the book of Ephesians starts to talk about parenting and the relationship between children and parents, he starts out and he says, children, obey your parents, and then this leads to honor. So who are the children to obey? Come on, all out loud. 
parents, that's a plural, correct? They're to obey mom and dad. Then it says, children, you're to honor who? Mother and father. The, Paul addresses this as a unit. Mother, father together, you are to obey them, you are to honor them. But then when Paul moves into specific instructions for the father, or for, excuse me, for the parents, he's no longer talking in this duplicitous thing, this idea of a mother and father. He turns his attention to one person, and that is who? The father. Look at the very next verse. Fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Men are specifically pointed out by Paul because scripture specifically points out and calls out men to an added level of responsibility. Now, in my home, my wife has a leadership role and has a massive role raising the children and all those things. Absolutely. She spends more time with the children than I am just by nature. The fact that she's home, my children are homeschooled at this point in life, and she's around them. So is there a, a responsibility on her shoulders to lead and to parent? Of course. But if Jesus was to come to my house tomorrow because there was an issue in our parenting and he knocked on the door and my wife were to answer, he would say, Bronwyn, good morning, where's Jeff? That's just the reality of it. And we see this from Genesis 3 because in the fall of men, we just talked about this, Eve ate the apple or whatever the fruit was. Somebody tried to convince me it's a pomegranate. Whatever it was, Eve ate of the fruit first, Adam ate second. But when God comes into the garden to deal with it, who's he calling to? The scriptures say, but the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And the scripture throughout the history, of all of redemptive history, puts the blame or the responsibility for this first sin squarely on the shoulders of Adam, though it was Eve that took first, because Adam was given the responsibility to lead and shepherd his home. It doesn't mean everything's his fault, but it makes it his responsibility on a level that exceeds the level of responsibility for that that God puts on the mother or the wife in the relationship. God's coming to you first, men. That's the reality of the scripture. So when Paul here in Ephesians begins to write about parenting and wants to speak to parents, he turns his, his attention first and foremost to fathers. And then he says the weirdest command of all the things to start out with. He says, fathers, here's my parenting advice. Do not provoke your children to wrath. Now here's the weird thing. The Bible leaves a lot of area for creativity with regards to how to parent your children. In fact, if you, if you really break it down, there's not a ton of really specific how-to or what-to-do information in the scriptures given to parents about specifics on how to raise your children. There's not nearly as much as we would prefer, right, parents? And so of all the things that Paul could say, of all the things that he could address, the first thing he reaches to is he says to fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Why? Why would you start there? I think we need to understand the reality of the world that we live in is that all of the world is broken. Genesis 3 tells us that when sin entered the world, everything broke. So pestilence entered the world. Um, uh, 
work became difficult. The, the earth that used to be cultivated by man willingly now is not cultivated willingly. Work works against us. And so work, instead of always being fulfilling and always being joyful, now the Bible describes it as the sweat of our brow. We will labor as we work. Um, childbirth becomes painful. And relationships, and in particular, issues of submission and authority are broken. They're going to be difficult. Genesis 3 guarantees there will be strife between some of these relationships, warns us in advance. And so with that being the case, we need to understand that authority structures in the world that we live in today are absolutely broken. And then add to that the reality that fallen men of whom we all are, amen, you take fallen men in a broken authority structure and in a world that's pressure and high-paced and difficult, and there's a recipe for all sorts of disaster that can come. Because you can go, guys, you know this, work a long day during the week, you're underappreciated at work, your boss doesn't understand all the things that you're doing well, you're not getting attention for the things that you're doing good, but he notices everything that you do bad, been there. And so it's a stressful week. Now we have cell phones and emails, so you're never fully off. They can reach you whenever they want. You're driving home. You got cut off five times. Your air conditioner's broke. It's a million degrees and it's fire season. So you're, you make your way home and your men, well, really just like us, we can get tired, we can get worn down, and then men, what affects us more than being disrespected? Anything? We'll talk about that later in Ephesians 2, but I, I don't know, for, for most of us, if, if someone disrespects us, I mean, they kind of have to die, right? I mean, isn't, isn't that the reality of it? It's like, you can mess with my car, you can mess with my lawn, you can kick the dog, do not disrespect, maybe not the dog thing, but do not disrespect me. That's a particular difficulty for us as men to deal with. So, so here's what you get. You have this broken world with broken authority structures, fallen men put in positions of authority over sinful, subordinate children, and you're tired and worn down and a kid pops off or something happens and you have a recipe for anger. It's so easy. It can come so quick. And you can see the flow here in the scripture. He starts out, children, obey your parents in the Lord. In other words, the fact that he's telling them this in the first place means they're not going to do that naturally. He's saying, children, you need to do this. Children, you need to do this. And then dads, you need to do this because they're not always going to do that. And don't provoke your children to wrath is what he's talking about. Don't let this lead into anger. Avoid avoidable anger. And, and this is the reason. Anger in a relationship is particularly dangerous. Anger in a relationship is particularly dangerous. Anger seems to trump every other emotion when it comes up. You could be sad, happy, fearful, whatever, but when anger comes in, it has a way of jumping straight to the top of the list in that moment and controlling all the other actions, reactions, the words that we say. It has this dominant effect once it's inflamed within us. And so how many times in your life, in our lives, have we ever said something to someone else out of anger and regretted it earlier? I mean, anger has a way of bringing things out of us that were never intended to come up, bringing the worst out of us and affecting relationships. And some of you are thinking right now, oh, he's talking about anger and I don't really have anger issues. He's talking about abusive dads and things like that. That's not me and I'm just gonna check out. No, I don't care who you are. You could be super parent. You could have a cape that says Dobson on the back. Like, I don't, I don't care who you are. We all have these same sorts of proclivities that can draw us into things such as, and in particular for this passage today, anger. 
And Paul brings this up first because anger can absolutely destroy relationships and can destroy children. Absolutely destroy them. Anyone in here have fathers that were angry men? (laughs) Hands are coming up. I didn't think you'd actually do that, but okay. I assume your dad's not with you, or that's awkward. (laughs) Happy Father's Day, Dad. Just give me a second. (laughs) Here's your necktie. But how has that affected you through the years? Do you find that it brings the same sort of tendencies in you? Do you find that at times you still struggle in fear in the way that you did when you were younger? Do you find it difficult to understand the love and approval of God because you sort of take that experience with your earthly father and sort of push that onto your relationship with your heavenly father? So your dad was always mad at you, your dad was always frustrated with you, your dad was never pleased with you, and so now you have this belief in your heart that God is always frustrated with you, that God is always upset with you. I've definitely been there. Most of the memories that I have with my father when I look back, if I, if I was to describe his emotional state towards me in those memories, I would say he was frustrated. Granted, I did a lot to do that, and yet still. And that stuff affects you. It can create quick triggers in relationships even to this day for children. It causes bitterness between children and father. It destroys people's idea of what God looks like because men, one of the reasons that there's such a great burden of responsibility put on us to be good fathers is because we do become a sort of model for the type of love that God has for us. That's why God even says, I'm your father, because he's pulling from a relationship that children and us as we grow should be able to get a good mental picture of, oh, God's like that. But then if you're going, wait, God's like that? You see the difficulty? And counseling offices are filled to the brim with, with people who are still dealing with well, daddy issues. And I don't mean just young girls seeking attention. I mean issues of anger and abandonment and fear in relationships. We, we did a whole retreat on this last fall. Some of you men were there. Remember, we read letters from young women in the church who are writing about the things they're going through right now because of things that happen, whether it be abusive fathers or neglectful fathers or absentee fathers. And the effects of that stuff is devastating, especially on young women. But it's really not even fair to say because a lot of times the young men grow to duplicate that. And so it's a big deal. And so that's why he comes right out the gate and he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't let anger become the dominant influence in your relationship with your kids, whether you're provoking it from them or even reacting yourself, because that's probably the emotion you're in if you're doing the provoking, is anger. And so he says, don't do that. So what does that look like? Like, how do we do that? We're sinful, fallen men. We understand our weaknesses and our insecurities, and we understand all those things that can be inflamed. We understand the difficulties and pressures of life today. And maybe our tempers are short at times. Maybe it's been a bad week. How do we avoid that? What are the things that we do? There's no one-step process to this, but I I have just a couple of observations for you that I'm convinced play a big role. Um, The first would be this. Dads, don't scream at your kids. That's the only way they'll listen to me. No, I, I get that. But as the volume goes up in those conversations, the sanity and the ability to reach the heart is gonna just go down. Don't scream at your kids. 
show that sort of restraint. It's not okay to raise voice. And some of you are thinking right now, dude, Jeff, you can't do that, man. You're gonna get us killed. Like you can't, you can't allow us to show that kind of weakness. You can't talk about this, but, but I'm gonna push it even further. When we are in places where we fail, because we are not, and, and let me disclaimer this, because some of you might be thinking, Jeff, your kids aren't even in high school yet. You don't know nothing. I agree, I agree. But, but here's the thing. We are never gonna be perfect at this, ever. And so when we do, what's the appropriate response? is we repent to our kids, to our kids. And you see, you can't show that kind of weakness. You have to be the authority structure. That's weakness. No, the Bible says that is Jesus-like strength. Your children learn your heart. Your children learn to trust you. They learn to trust that you are safe even when you mess up. And they see Jesus-like humility in the way that you're reacting with them. So it's, it's never okay to scream at our kids. And we, we should prepare ourselves for this because here's just the news flash, right? 12-year-olds are probably gonna act like 12-year-olds. And you know why? Because they're 12-year-olds. So we should understand and expect that there are gonna be issues of immaturity that are gonna happen to our kids that sometimes are gonna drive us nuts. But here's the reality of it, dad and moms. God has placed us in the lives of these kids as agents of maturation, So he's put us there to help these kids become more mature, so it seems stupid for us to get upset and fly off the handle when we see immaturity. We're put there to shepherd them from that in a godly, graceful way. And we set ourselves up for this too, right? Because like we gush over our kids. My daughters, I'm telling them all the time, you are so beautiful, you are so talented, you are amazing, you're so precious. And we say that over and over and over, and rightfully so. We want our daughters to understand that. We don't want them looking for affection in wrong places, and so we just dote over them and we just gush. Oh, you're so beautiful. You know what they hear? I'm the center of the universe. 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 Then, when they're teenagers, what are we trying to teach them? You are not the center of the universe. You are not the center of the universe. You are not the center of the universe, right? That's our role. And so if we understand that in advance and be prepared for that, it can help us prevent us from just flying off the handle and exploding every time something happens or raising our voices or yelling at our children or any of those sorts of things. We need to understand this is why we're here. We can respond with stern but humble, gentle, and gracious strength. This is what we're called to do. The second thing that kind of goes along with some of that, just be careful with jabs and sarcasm. I mean, I don't know your relationship with your kids, and maybe you've got a teenage boy and you tease with him and all those kinds of things, but I would still say even in that, be careful. Like, for me growing up, I'm gonna get really personal here. I didn't plan this, but here we go. Um, For me growing up, because I always felt like I was constantly trying to earn affection from my father that never came, because he was the dad that just came home, turned on the TV and disappeared, and I only heard from him and he was frustrated at me. So my relationship with him, with him was like, I need to earn his favor and stay out of his way and not mess things up for him. That was my responsibility, that was my understanding of what my relationship with my dad was like. And so, so with this, some of those insecurities that are gonna grow up in an awkward teenage kid in North Carolina or wherever else are, are, are kind of inflamed. And one of the ways that I would deal with it as a kid was humor. I'll just be funny and we'll laugh and we'll tease. And so my dad sometimes engaged me in that same sort of way. But I'll tell you something, to this day, I can remember some of the things he said in those sort of settings and how they cut me. And I played it off because I didn't wanna upset him 
didn't want to embarrass him, didn't want to show weakness. He wouldn't approve of that. Of course, sticks and stones may break my bones. Words would never hurt me, right? That's such garbage. Such gar- I'd rather have a broken arm than a broken spirit any day. Amen? So be careful, dads. And I'm as sarcastic and teasing as they come, but be careful what we do with our words. And the third one is this one. Just spend time with them, assuring them and convincing them of your love for them. And this seems like a no-brainer, but the importance of this with regards to parenting in general is so important, dads, because here's the deal. Don't provoke your children to anger. You're like, but I have to discipline. I have to deal with issues, and if they respond mad because I disciplined them, what am I supposed to do? Well, I would say one of the preventative measures that you can institute into your relationship with your kids to help prevent that kind of anger is when they understand your heart for them, When they understand that even as you discipline them, you have a track record that shows that you love them, that you care for them, that you're for them. You say yes more than you say no. You are so behind them and you love them so much, it makes it a whole lot easier for them to understand why you're disciplining them. It makes it a whole lot easier for our children to go, he's doing this and I don't like it, but I can trust him. He's for me. Even if I don't understand it right now, he's for me. Isn't that what we do with the Lord, right? When God's doing things, don't we go back to his track record of love for us? In fact, this is how God deals with us with regards to his laws in the first place. When you go to the Ten Commandments, he doesn't go, these are my rules, listen up, number one. You know what he does? He starts out and says, I'm the Lord your God who delivered you from slavery, He says, I am the one that has put myself out there for you. I have cared for you. I have loved you. He's pointing back to his track record so that they would trust him as he moves into and says, this is what I need from you, my children. And so dads, deposit before you withdraw. That's really the easiest way of saying it, right? If you make sure that out of anything your kid could struggle with in life, he should never struggle with the fact or she should never struggle with the understanding that God loves them and that you love them. Those two things should be no-brainers in the life of every kid. And sometimes that takes some time. But man, it'll help them understand when you discipline them that it's for them, that you're not just trying to get them out of the way because they annoy you. And that's a difficult thing for a kid. Now look where Paul goes next. Look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, this day and age, um, we've largely kind of abdicated our responsibility of teaching our children, especially with regards to the Bible, to the church, or maybe the mothers do it some, or you send them to a Christian school, something like that, to take care of that. The scriptures fly in the face of that notion. The primary responsibility of instruction is for men to be teachers of the Bible to their children. Um, And and this is laid out so beautifully and so clearly with the consequences and stuff laid out so clearly in Psalm 78, which is what I asked you guys to turn to earlier. Will you look at Psalm 78 with me? In Psalm 78, which is an entire psalm about transfer of information to the next generation. That's the entire psalm here. And look at verse one through four. It says this. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. 
We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. This is what he says, the primary responsibility, I've already alluded to it, but here's job number one for every dad is not to raise a moral kid, not to raise a kid that's well-behaved, that follows all the rules. Your number one primary responsibility as a dad is to teach your kids the wonders of God. To teach your kids how amazing God is. Everything you do, you should find ways to turn all of that back to the Lord with your children. If you're out fishing and your, kill, your kids are with you and you're, you're looking around at just the gorgeous rogue river and your kids are like, man, it's so pretty out here, Dad. You should turn that back to the Lord right then. Isn't it amazing that God loves us so much that he would put us in a place like this, that he would create such beauty that's all designed to point back to him in the first place? Isn't God amazing? Later today, if you're having a Father's Day barbecue, isn't it great that God made cows out of steak? <laughs> And, and isn't it great that steak tastes this good? God could have given us food with no flavor whatsoever, but that is a grace from God. He's a great and creative creator who, when we eat a meal, he wants us to enjoy it. Isn't it amazing how good God is to us? Isn't it amazing the stars? Isn't it great? I mean, imagine if your kid's testimony of you growing up, rather than me saying like what I said about my relationship with my dad, he was always frustrated. What if the testimony instead was, and he was just always talking about God. I couldn't swim in the pool or eat a piece of chocolate without him talking about God. Isn't God great? He gave us water slides. I mean, that's the role of the universe. You understand that, right? That everything, all of creation is supposed to point us back to God. And so the primary role from fathers is to build awe in your kids at the goodness and greatness of God. Now, Here's the problem with fundamentalism, okay? Fundamentalism, which is not fun, though it's very mental, they say. Fundamentalism is this. Fundamentalism turns God into a police officer. So, so what you do is, if, if you're taking sort of a fundamentalist approach towards raising your children with regards to the scriptures, you teach your kid, God hates liars. So what's the kid think? Uh-oh. That means God hates who? Everybody. God doesn't like this, God doesn't like this, God doesn't like this. Be careful where you go because God's going everywhere with you. It's like that horrible, scary Santa Claus song. Be good for goodness sakes, you better watch out. But think about that. Is that what you wanna teach your kids about God? I'm not saying we don't teach about the difficulties with lying. I don't I'm not saying we don't teach those things, but is that the primary lesson we want our kids? <laughs> Are we teaching our kids in that to run to him or to be horrified of him? The primary responsibility for us as parents and the primary responsibility being on the shoulders of dads, teach your kids to be amazed at God, to be in awe of God at how good he is, how loving he is. Even the scriptures themselves say, don't they? It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So teach them how good God is. Make known the wonders of God. And then he goes on in verse five. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach the children that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children. You want a scary thought, guys? Think about this. The way you parent your kids now will affect your grandchildren. Not just your own. You are shepherding two generations of kids right now, whether you even know it or not. 
That's a good kind of fear to, to know. So here he says specifically, we are to make known the scriptures by teaching them to your kids. So our responsibility as men, dads, all dads say amen. Oh, come on now. Um, all dads say football. football. <laughs> There's even less somehow. Okay, just if you're next to a dad, elbow him. Listen up, listen. It is our responsibility to shepherd our kids through the scriptures, to teach them the scriptures. But that doesn't just mean let's get them together every night in the living room in a circle and break down Hebrew. For, for most of us, that, that dynamic just doesn't work. And honestly, probably leads to more men having to repent for the misbehavior that was going on in the room later. It just increases wrath, not joy. So, so a lot of times, that's not the setting that we're talking about. Um, I think you teach the scriptures better than anything with your own life. I mean, even look how Jesus led the apostles. He would be walking through life. Yes, there were seminary settings. Yes, they were in synagogue. But a lot of times he was just walking with his men and he stopped and said, hey guys, look at this tree. Let me, let me teach you something about God through this tree. Guys, consider the lilies. Hey guys, see these birds? Does that, let me teach you something about the Lord. And taking these opportunities just as you go. I'm driving my daughter from Taekwondo practice back home and listening to the things that she says and looking for opportunity to talk about the Lord just in everyday life. And it's also really important this, and this one, I think we all know this, though we don't consider it a lot. Kids have a built-in hypocrisy meter. Have you noticed that? They have a built-in hypocrisy meter. And I don't mean just with regards to religion. I mean, um, I don't know, things like, um, hey, Dad, um, you, you... You said that I couldn't have two cookies because two cookies would make me sick. And, and you had a cookie with me. And then I went out of the room. And when I came back in, you had, a no, you had two more cookies, Daddy. Don't worry about me. <laughs> Don't worry about me, kid, right? Hey, honey, it's bedtime. It's 8 o'clock. I need you to go to bed. Why, Daddy? Well, honey, because we want you to get a lot of rest. This is going to be good for you. We want you to have energy when you get up in the morning. We don't want you to be grumpy. We want you to be healthy. And so I want you to go to bed at 8 o'clock. What about you, daddy? Oh, it's okay, honey, I'm old. I don't need as much sleep. That's a lie, right? <laughs> Older people, amen, is that true? We don't need sleep? It's not true. But our, our kids notice things like that. They notice the things that we tell them that might be different from the things that we're doing ourselves. So if they notice it in cookies, if they notice it in bedtime, you don't think they notice it in our walk with the Lord and our relationship with Christ? Like they're gonna see this stuff. And there's even been studies done about people who have walked away from Christianity after they've left the home. And the number one reason that so many young people walk away from the faith, literally, number one reason is because they didn't see any value in the faith to their parents, so why should they need it? And this is important. You cannot be the shepherd and teacher of God's word to your kids if you yourself don't know, follow, and submit to God's word for yourself. So your kids should understand that Christianity is not just something we do on Sunday morning and it's not just a tax write-off for our money every so often, but that our faith is real. It's important. And I'm gonna really step on some toes now. This will be the least popular Father's Day message ever. Between Homer Simpson on the screen and all this stuff, this will be the least popular, but, but this is the reality of it is. You also cannot teach your kids about the primary importance of the gospel and then navigate life in such a way that doesn't put the gospel and God's word primary in your lives. So, so in other words, teaching your kids, we go to church as long as it's not soccer season or whatever. Now look, I'm not a fundamentalist. I think there's a time when you go, hey guys, we normally go to church today, but as a family, we're gonna go do this. I, I think there's time for those things. Don't get me wrong. 
But what are we teaching our kids about the importance of the scriptures? Are, are we teaching our kids that worship of God and the study of God is really good and really important as long as it fits in among the other things? I mean, Jim Brown, since we're talking about sports, because you might be thinking, Jeff, it's easy for you to say your kids don't ball. Well, listen, my kids can ball. They just don't ball. But Jim Brown, maybe the best running back in the history of pro football, he retired, surprisingly, at the peak of his career. Everyone was stunned when he retired. So there were tons of interviews like, why are you quitting? What are you doing? And someone famously asked Jim Brown when he retired, hey, don't you love the game anymore? And his response was classic and has become famous ever since. He said, I love the game, but the game don't love nobody. So think about that. What is it that we are teaching our kids? Are we teaching our kids to seek love, attention, and investment in something that will never return that same kind of love and care to them in return? Are we teaching them about the one true source of all love in the universe and the source of grace that they so desperately need? So we're to teach God's word to our kids, but we need to teach it through our own actions. And then the, the second thing, I'm gonna give you three of these here about teaching. The, the second thing is this, and this is a good thing, dads, you should relish this role. Like you, sh you should embrace and love this role. I mean, your kids are only gonna be with you for so long. And with your kids, think about this for just a minute. With that setting, you and your children, you get to be a hero. Do you understand? Like, you get to be their hero. Those opportunities don't come along very often, right? So relish that opportunity. Understand that. Say, Lord, you've given me this kid for a specific period of time, and I want to be faithful in what I'm doing, but relish this role. You should enjoy being a father to your children. That should be good for you. And we all have the egos, so, man, let it be stroked. Be the hero for your children. And then number three is this. And this is maybe the most important of the three. In the teaching of the word to our children, I can only do my part. That's all I can do. There's a difference between teaching and understanding and teaching and knowing. All I can do is teach. The rest is up to them. There's, there's people in this room that have faithfully taught the scriptures to both of their children, for example, and one's walking with the Lord and one's not. There's people in, that, in this room that have experienced that. What our children need is the Holy Spirit to awaken their heart and passions to the love and grandeur of God. And so part of being a dad, part of being a teacher of your kids, part of being a shepherd of your family is being on your knees and begging that God would open their hearts to him. Because that's the only hope they have. No one in this room can teach well enough to teach our kids into the kingdom of God. We need the Holy Spirit to work and we need him to move so what happens if God does move? Take a look at what he goes to next, verse six of Psalm 78. That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. This is the idea to their grandchildren. Your, your teaching your children now even affects your grandchildren moving down the road. And then he goes in verse seven and says, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Huh. Teach your kids, be a faithful father, so that they won't be like you. That seems weird, maybe, but maybe not if you've been parenting for any length of time. 
Because even as we've taught through these things, there's not a dad in here that hasn't felt like, oh, I'm not doing that well. I'm not doing this really good right now. Jeff's stepping on my toes. I wish he'd shut up. Why does he gush over moms on Mother's Day and yell on dads at Father's Day? What, what is all this stuff? Look, no one is nailing this. No one is nailing this. We all fall, right? But dads, don't we want our kids to do better than us? I remember the first time that I caught my oldest daughter, Hannah, in full-on intentional rebellious sin. I remember it. My uh, mother had sent money to them, or maybe it was their great-grandma, I can't remember who, had sent money to them in a card for something like Valentine's Day or something like that. We have two kids, she sent $5. What kind of sadistic stuff is that? (sighs) Even numbers, people. Do you know the strife that creates in the home when it's time to divide $5 amongst two kids? You got five $1 bills? I would literally, you're tempted to just, just tear it. There you go, two and a half. I remember that though. And so Allie was really young at the time, couldn't even speak yet. And Hannah, I don't remember how old she was. This was probably, oh, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And, uh, and we told her, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to take that money and you need to divide it over here and this is what you're gonna do. And, and actually you had just, Hannah, I think if I get this right, had just gotten something where she got more of it than the younger daughter. So we actually said, okay, this time here's what we want you to do. You're gonna put three in your sister's thing this time, sister's piggy bank, and you're gonna put two in yours. She was like, okay, daddy. And she went behind the couch as I was sitting there watching TV and it was really quiet. You know that quiet where you're like, something's wrong, quiet? And so I literally, I just sort of peeked over the, over the thing and I watched her intentionally take that third dollar, start to go to the, and then to her piggy bank and start to put it in there. And I gotta tell you, the moment that I saw that, my heart broke. Not because she had disobeyed me. It wasn't about my pride taking a hit or being angry with her. She disrespected me or nothing. You know what broke was for the first time I saw in my daughter the reality that she's gonna struggle with sin her entire life just like I do. And I was sad for her. I saw that and I was like, honey, I don't want you to have the same struggles like that that I do. I want you to do better than I did. I want you to walk closer to Jesus than I did. I want you to understand his truth better than me. I don't want you to learn things the hard way, the way I have. I want you to be able to trust God and trust me and avoid this kind of stuff. And my heart was broken. I want my daughter to do better than me. I want my daughter to grow with Jesus. I don't want my daughters to go through years of rebellion, figuring out faith on their own like I did. And so I have to be on my knees. Even studying these things was such, such a slap in my own face. Jeff, wake up. Your daughter just entered junior high. You're running out of time. It's a small window of time that you get with her. And this is what I've called you to, Jeff. And now look, Here's the beauty of it. God is gracious. And so, so I can hear these things, and it was convicting to me, and I was like, oh, I've got to change this. I've got to do better. I've gotten away from some things, and, and I need to get back on track. But then I understand also the grace and mercy of my heavenly Father as he looks down on me. What do the scriptures say? He looks at us as a father pities his children. So he says, Jeff, I know, I know, but I'm gracious. And look how amazing your kids are turning out in spite of your unfaithfulness. I got this, but I want you to have a good relationship with your children, and even more so, I want you to have a good relationship with me. 
So because I love you, Jeff, I'm gonna, I'm gonna awaken your heart to some things that you need to get back on track with. And that's, that's what this stuff's about. And so many of you in this room, maybe that same thing has happened. And let me encourage you, God is good. The death of Jesus Christ covered every one of our failures as parents. But God's word calls us to a closer and closer relationship with him and with our kids. And so we should see these things and we should take stock and think about what is it that we need to do different? What do we need to adjust? Because our time with those kids is so, so small. And on that day, I've done a strange number of funerals lately for us. I've never seen anyone's favorite football team come to the funeral. I've never seen anyone's hobbies walk through the door. I never saw the banker, the investment manager. I never saw any of that. You know what I saw? Their kids their family standing around them and the love of God displayed in them and through them. And that's what I want. Don't you want that? A couple of disclaimers before we stop. Single moms. The, these are truths for all of life, but, but here's a really good one for you, okay? If you're a single mom in this place, the Bible makes one principle really clear, that God has a way of making up for the areas and the things that we lack, the scriptures even say that he's a father to the fatherless. And so I don't discount the difficulty, the emotional difficulty, the practical difficulty of raising children without having this role in place, but I know this much, you have better than a good earthly father, you have a great heavenly father and he will be faithful to you if you continue to seek him and be faithful to him. And that this church body exists to come alongside you. We are called to specifically minister to orphans and widows. And I think in this day and age with single moms and all those sorts of things, it's the same category. So when you're struggling, man, reach out to us. Let us know. Let's see how we can come alongside you. In your community groups, get in huddle groups. Let them know about the things that are going on so that they can come around you and give you community. But you need to trust God. And you need to trust the reality that there's people like me and all sorts of people in this room that came out of broken homes and that are walking with Jesus in a way that honors him as well. And so have faith in God. Have faith in God and be encouraged. Another one, dads that you feel like you've messed up and it's too late, I can tell you something. I mentioned earlier how many times we've talked to people in counseling settings and stuff who are dealing with issues because of their dad. Let me tell you this, I don't care how old your kids are, it is never too late to pick up the phone to repent and to convince your kid that you love them. I would kill for that phone call from my father. Maybe not kill, but I would, I would do a lot of things I'd kill a spider, but, I would <laughs> but I've talked to so many people that are dealing with those things, and several of them all the time will say, why won't he just say he loves me? It's not too late to do that. So you messed up. God's grace covers that. You're not dead yet. Keep going. Be faithful. Shepherd. Love. Encourage. Teach. You've still got precious time ahead. At this time, what I want to do is this. Now, I know this, this can be a religious, churchy thing where every dad stands up because, oh, what if they're looking at me and all this kind of stuff. But dads, listen to me from your heart. Th this is an opportunity. What I want to do is I'm going to ask if you, like me, want to stand up, that we as a congregation can pray for God's grace on these things and more in our lives. We're going to do that. And this is not about churchy religion. I'm saying if you're in your heart saying, man, I, I've been convicted from some things today and I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better grandfather. I want forgiveness for the things I've blown it. And I want to do better moving forward. I'm going to ask all of you dads to stand. I'm standing up already, but I'm standing with you. Will you stand up with me?
And with all heads bowed and with all eyes closed, let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your majesty. We are so thankful for your size and your greatness. We are thankful for your grace and your forgiveness, for your heart for us, for your example as our heavenly Father and the unconditional love that you give us, the sacrifice that you make for us. We are so thankful for you, Lord. But Lord, the more we understand your greatness and your faithfulness, the more we're confronted with our own lack of it our own failures. And so God, we need your grace. God, even right now there are men standing here in this room that in their hearts are repenting and asking forgiveness for failures, specifically in this area of fatherhood, Lord, I know I am. And so I thank you for the promises of your word that say you are just and able to forgive. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your faithfulness with our children in spite of us. And Lord, I'm, thankful, I'm very thankful for the call that your scripture gives to us. And so Lord, for all the men that are standing right now who would, and you guys just join with me in this prayer, Lord, for, for all of us in our hearts who know our areas of weakness, who know our limitations, who know our failures, our laziness, our idolatry, our insecurities, any of the things that have come up over this day, Lord, we are frail and fallen men and we need your help and your grace and your Holy Spirit if we have any shot at doing any of these things. So God, will your spirit, I pray, just come upon each of us now, Lord, for this role, this mantle of Father. I pray that in a day where we celebrate fathers on Father's Day, I pray that this would be cause for greater celebration moving forward because your spirit has moved and worked in the lives of every man here to make us more and more like you as a father. So God, will you mold us and shape us, humble us, encourage us, strengthen us, I pray specifically for relationships between children and these men that are standing right now. If there's strained relationships, will you repair them? If there's humility and repentance that needs to be, take place on behalf of the men here towards their kids, will you grant it? I pray, God, for restored relationships. If there's relationships like mine with my own father that doesn't even exist at this time, Lord, would you bring it? And I pray, God, that you would just move in the hearts of these men. Lord, for young men who are here who may not even be standing, and I, I should have had them stand as well, who want to be this kind of father as they grow, would you be leading them and preparing them for that now? And God, I pray that at least within the walls of this church, you would change the tide of fatherhood that we see in our culture. May we be able to look at people all over this room and say, there's a good dad, there's a good dad, there's a good dad, but not because we are so amazing, but because your grace is so prevalent in our life. So Lord, for these men, I pray that you would bless them. I know that your heart is to bless them, and I pray that you would bless them by growing, drawing them closer to you, and as a result, drawing the whole family close to you. May they lead in the way that you lead, and may they delight in you and in the children you've given them. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said.